Chapter Eighteen of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Read by Tom Daly. Chapter Eighteen. The state hospital in which I now found myself, the third institution to which I had been committed, though in many respects above average of such institutions, was typical. It commanded a wide view of a beautiful river and valley. This view I was permitted to enjoy, at first. Those in charge of the institution which I had just left did not give my new custodians any detailed account of my case. Their reticence was, I believed, occasioned by chagrin rather than charity. Tamers of wild men have as much pride as tamers of wild animals, but unfortunately less skill and to admit defeat is a thing not to be thought of. Though private institutions are prone to shift their troublesome cases to state institutions, there is too often a deplorable lack of sympathy and cooperation between them, which in this instance, however, proved fortunate for me. From October 18th until the early afternoon of November 8th, at the private institution, I had been classed as a raving maniac. The name I had brought upon myself by experimental conduct, the condition, had been aggravated and perpetuated by the stupidity of those in authority over me, and it was the same experimental conduct on my part and stupidity on the part of my new custodians which gave rise, two weeks later, to a similar situation. On Friday, November 7th, I was in a straitjacket. On November 9th and 10th, I was apparently as tractable as any of the twenty-three hundred patients in the state hospital, conventionally clothed, mild-mannered, and seemingly right-minded. On the ninth, the day after my arrival, I attended a church service held at the hospital. My behavior was not other than that of most pious worshippers in the land. The next evening, with most exemplary deportment, I attended one of the dances which are held every fortnight during the winter. Had I been a raving maniac, such activities would have led to a disturbance, for maniacs of necessity disregard the conventions of both pious and polite society. Yet on either of these days, had I been in the private institution which I had recently left, I should have occupied a cell and worn a straitjacket. The assistant superintendent, who received me upon my arrival, judged me by my behavior. He assigned me to one of two connecting wards, the best in the hospital, where about seventy patients led a fairly agreeable life. Though no official account of my case had accompanied my transfer, the attendant who had acted as escort and guard had already given an attendant at the state hospital a brief account of my recent experiences. Yet, when this report finally reached the ears of those in authority, they wisely decided not to transfer me to another ward, so long as I caused no trouble where I was. Finding myself at last among friends, I lost no time in asking for writing and drawing materials, which had so rudely been taken from me three weeks earlier. My request was promptly granted. The doctors and attendants treated me kindly, and I again began to enjoy life. My desire to write and draw had not abated. However, 
I did not devote my entire time to those pursuits, for there were plenty of congenial companions about. I found pleasure in talking, more pleasure by far than others did in listening. In fact, I talked incessantly, and soon made known, in a general way, my scheme for reforming institutions, not only in my native state, but, of course, throughout the world, for my grandiose perspective made the earth look small. The attendants had to bear the brunt of my loquacity, and they soon grew weary. One of them, wishing to induce silence, ventured to remark that I was so crazy I could not possibly keep my mouth shut for even one minute. It was a challenge which aroused my fighting spirit. "'I'll show you that I can stop talking for a whole day,' I said. He laughed, knowing that of all difficult tasks this which I had imposed upon myself was, for one in my condition, least likely of accomplishment. But I was good as my boast. Until the same hour the next day I refused to speak to anyone. I did not even reply to civil questions, and though my silence was deliberate and good-natured, the assistant physician seemed to consider it of a contumacious variety for he threatened to transfer me to a less desirable ward unless I should again begin to talk. That day of self-imposed silence was about the longest I have ever lived, for I was under a word pressure sufficient to have filled a book. Any psychiatrist will admit that my performance was remarkable, and he will further agree that it was, at least, an indication of a high degree of self-control. Though I have no desire to prove that at this period I was not in an abnormal condition, I do wish to show that I had a degree of self-control that probably would have enabled me to remain in the best ward at this institution had I not been intent, abnormally intent, of course, and yet with a high degree of deliberation, upon a reformative investigation. The crest of my wave of elation had been reached early in October. It was now, November, that the curve representing my return to normality should have been continuous and diminishing. Instead, it was kept violently fluctuating, or at least its fluctuations were aggravated, by the impositions of those in charge of me, induced sometimes, I freely admit, by deliberate and purposeful transgressions of my own. My condition during my three weeks of exile just ended had been, if anything, one of milder excitement than that which had obtained previously during the first seven weeks of my period of elation, and my condition during the two weeks I now remained in the best ward in the state hospital was not different from my condition during the preceding three weeks of torture, or the succeeding three weeks of abuse and privation except in so far as a difference was occasioned by the torture and privation themselves. Though I had long intended to effect reforms in the existing methods of treatment, my reckless desire to investigate violent wards did not possess me until I myself had experienced the torture of continued confinement in one such ward before coming to this state institution. It was simple to deduce that if one could suffer such abuses as I had while a patient in a private institution, nay, in two private institutions, 
brutality must exist in a state hospital also. Thus it was that I entered the state hospital with a firm resolve to inspect personally every type of ward, good and bad. But I was in no hurry to begin. My recent experience had exhausted me, and I wished to regain strength before subjecting myself to another such ordeal. This desire to recuperate controlled my conduct for a while, but its influence gradually diminished as life became more and more monotonous. I soon found the good ward entirely too polite. I craved excitement, action, and I determined to get it, regardless of consequences, though I am free to confess I should not have had the courage to proceed with my plan had I known what was in store for me. About this time my conservator called to see me. Of course I told him all about my cruel experiences at the private institution. My account surprised and distressed him. I also told him that I knew for a fact that similar conditions existed at the state hospital, as I had heard convincing rumors to that effect. He urged me to behave myself and remain in the ward where I was, which ward, as I admitted, was all that one could desire, provided one had schooled himself to desire that sort of thing. The fact that I was under lock and key and behind what was virtually prison bars in no way gave me a sense of helplessness. I firmly believed that I should find it easy to effect my escape and reach home for the Thanksgiving Day celebration. And furthermore, I knew that, should I reach home, I should not be denied my portion of the good things to eat before being returned to the hospital. Being under the spell of an intense desire to investigate the violent ward, I concluded that the time for action had come. I reasoned, too, that it would be easier and safer to escape from that ward, which was on a level with the ground, than from a ward three stories above it. The next thing I did was to inform the attendants not to mention several of the patients, that within a day or two I should do something to cause my removal to it. They, of course, did not believe that I had any idea of deliberately inviting such a transfer. My very frankness disarmed them. On the evening of November 21st, I went from room to room collecting all sorts of odds and ends belonging to other patients. These I secreted in my room. I also collected a small library of books, magazines, and newspapers. After securing all the booty I dared, I mingled with the other patients until the time came for going to bed. The attendants soon locked me up in my junk shop, and I spent the rest of the night setting it in disorder. My original plan had been to barricade the door during the night, and thus hold the doctors and attendants at bay until those in authority had accepted my ultimatum, which was to include a Thanksgiving visit at home. But before morning I had slightly altered my plan. My sleepless night of activity had made me ravenously hungry, and I decided that it would be wiser not only to fill my stomach, but to lay by other supplies of food before submitting to a siege. Accordingly, I set things to rights and went about my business the next morning as usual. At breakfast, I ate enough for two men, and put in my pockets bread enough to last for twenty-four hours at least. 
Then I returned to my room and at once barricaded the door. My barricade consisted of a wardrobe, several drawers which I had removed from the bureau, and a number of books, among them Paradise Lost and the Bible. These, with conscious satisfaction, I placed in a position as a keystone. Thus the floor space between the door and the opposite wall of the room was completely filled. My roommate, a young fellow in the speechless condition in which I had been during my period of depression, was in the room with me. This was accidental. It was no part of my plan to hold him as a hostage, though I might finally have used him as a pawn in the negotiations had my barricade resisted the impending attack longer than it did. It was not long before the attendants realized that something was wrong. They came to my door and asked me to open it. I refused, and told them that to argue the point would be a waste of time. They tried to force an entrance. Failing in that, they reported to the assistant physician, who soon appeared. At first he parlayed with me. I good-naturedly, but emphatically, told him that I could not be talked out of the position I had taken, nor could I be taken out of it until I was ready to surrender, for my barricade was one that would surely hold. I also announced that I had carefully planned my line of action and knew what I was about. I complimented him on his hitherto tactful treatment of me, and grandiloquently, yet sincerely, thanked him for his many courtesies. I also expressed entire satisfaction with the past conduct of the attendants. In fact, on part of the institution, I put the stamp of my approval. But, I said, I know there are wards in this hospital where helpless patients are brutally treated, and I intend to put a stop to these abuses at once, not until the governor of the state, the judge who committed me, and my conservator come to this door will I open it. When they arrive, we'll see whether or not patients are to be robbed of their rights and abused. My speech was made through a screen transom over the door. For a few minutes, the doctor continued his persuasive methods, but that he should even imagine that I would basely recede from my high and mighty position only irritated me the more. "'You can stand outside that door all day if you choose,' I said. "'I won't open it until the three men I have named appear. "'I have prepared for a siege, "'and I have enough food in this room to keep me going for a day anyway.' "'Realizing at last that no argument would move me, "'he set about forcing an entrance. First, he tried to remove the transom by striking it with a stout stick.' I gave blow for blow, and the transom remained in place. A carpenter was then sent for, but before he could go about his work, one of the attendants managed to open the door enough to thrust in his arm and shove aside my barricade. I did not realize what was being done, until it was too late to interfere. The door once opened, in rushed the doctor and four attendants. Without ceremony, I was thrown upon the bed with two or three of the attacking force on top of me. Again I was choked, this time by the doctor. The operation was a matter of only a moment, but before it was over I had the good fortune to deal the doctor a stinging blow on the jaw, for which, 
as he was about my own age and the odds were five to one, I had never felt called upon to apologize. Once I was subdued, each of the four attendants attached himself to a leg or an arm and, under the direction and leadership of the doctor, I was carried bodily through two corridors, down two flights of stairs, and to the violent ward. My dramatic exit startled my fellow patients, for so much action in so short a time is seldom seen in a quiet ward, and few patients placed in the violent ward are introduced with so impressive an array of camp followers as I had that day. All this to me was a huge joke, with a good purpose behind it. Though excited, I was good-natured, and on the way to my new quarters, I said to the doctor, whether you believe it or not, it's a fact that I'm going to reform these institutions before I'm done. I raised this rumpus to make you transfer me to the violent ward. What I want you to do now is to show me the worst you've got. You needn't worry, the doctor said. You'll get it. He spoke the truth. End of chapter 18